Welcome to Reciprocity Podcast, where we discuss the backstories and strategies of photojournalists, sports photographers, documentary filmmakers, and photo editors. Now, here's your host, Brett Carlson. So this week's podcast is a little different than normal. This week, we're going to talk about coronavirus, COVID-19, and photographing during this time, and how photojournalists have adapted, and basically what we are doing as professionals to work during this time and how it's affected us. Uh, I've got three really great guests. I tried really, really hard to get a fourth. I wanted a little more diversity in this group, but you know what? I just ran up against the wall and said, at some point you got to send it. And here we are, we're sending it out to you. So uh, that is kind of the brief synopsis of this episode. People have just gotten busy. It was kind of like the first few weeks, no one was doing anything, it seemed. And now it seems like everyone's super busy all of a sudden, which is Great to hear. I'm really excited for that. I was going to, at the beginning of this podcast, tell my story, photographing during coronavirus, but I decided that I'm going to throw that over on the Patreon feed. For those of you that aren't familiar, Patreon is a way for you to exchange monies with uh, a creator and help support what they are doing. So for this, you get premium content, extra content, uh, more in-depth interviews, some added bonus things like that. You also get some more tech stuff with my friend Zach Trinka and I. We kind of do some tech things over on the Patreon feed. And it, it's it's mainly though, it's, it's kind of uh, a way to sponsor the podcast and avoid getting really obnoxious ads about like car insurance in here. <laughs> so uh, let's try to keep car insurance out of the rest of the podcast and go support over on Patreon. Got a bunch of right people over there. Uh, Steven Davis, who's the Monsigner over on Instagram, and Tim Ludwig, who's T Ludwig Photo. Both great people that are supporting at the shout out level. Get you a shout out once a month. So I had to do my due diligence here, get them shouted out. But sincerely, uh, it's a huge help. I mean, it's a small amount of money uh, from each of these people, but it's a huge help in keeping me going, keeping me working on this, and also keeping us able to host it and stuff without making it a loss every single month. So really excited about the podcast, really excited about the Patreon. Uh, I think there's going to be some new listeners to this episode because it's a little bit different, maybe more, a little more timely episode. So if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe. And I will now shut up and get to the content. So please enjoy and thanks so much for listening. So our first guest today is Mark Kozlerich. He is a freelance photographer and documentary photographer, photojournalist in New York City. And he's also one of the National Geographic Explorers. He's done the Iowa caucuses. He's done work all over, uh, originally from Wisconsin, but now living in New York. And he's been covering this COVID-19 for weeks now. I mean, we're into like the two-month range right now, and Mark's been on the ground covering this for the whole time. Uh, without further ado, Mark, uh, maybe... Just start with your story of kind of like how maybe your first assignment and how this kind of started for you covering COVID-19. Let me pull up a calendar here for myself because it's, yeah, like you say, it's been, um, it's kind of been a wild ride and I don't really exactly remember um, everything, you know, time gets really weird right now. It's but, been super weird. Uh, it feels like for me, I feel like I'm in some kind of weird tunnel of time space continuum <laughs> where I'm like now two months deep and it's like, oh, it was like a few weeks. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, it's been like almost two months now. You know, I felt like simultaneously last week, both went super fast, like the weeks are flying by. And then I thought like, oh, I actually worked on Wednesday and Thursday. And that seems like it was just yesterday, but it was actually you know, however many days ago, it's kind of weird. I, I I think everybody's come up with really funny ways to put this, but I, I really like the term blurs day. <laughs> 
yeah everything is just blurs day um but yeah so i i actually was in south dakota sort of when the coronavirus stuff started ramping up in the united states i had gone back to this area that i had photographed on a grant for national geographic looking at uh, the state of rural America and population loss and the importance of community in rural places, which right now is actually super interesting to me um, because rural areas are super reliant on each other to be able to get by without access to a lot of things that cities might take for granted. And uh, now they're not able to rely on those things at all. They're not able to rely on each other nearly as much because they're strength is really now a weakness when you're trying to prevent against coronavirus but i was out there for something completely unrelated it was, coronavirus wasn't a huge story yet this was end of february and i flew back march 3rd and later that week i think it was maybe the the fifth i got a call from a client asking if i could go up to the northern part of manhattan to photograph yeshiva university which had announced that they were closing because a student's father and later the student and the rest of the student's family, I believe, all were diagnosed with coronavirus. And I remember being on the subway and my mom sent me a message on Facebook and my mom's a nurse, so she's very kind of attuned to these things. And she sent me a message saying, not to scare you, but there's a report of coronavirus in the city and they shut down this university in Manhattan. And I said to her, not to scare you, but I'm on the subway on my way to that university in Manhattan. <laughs> and moms have such great that, timing. <laughs> yeah. And she was, you know, she wasn't really freaked out by it at all. And I think, um, you know, maybe if we knew then what we know now, and I was reading a report last night, but if we knew then what we know now and if we had reacted sooner, especially in the United States or well, in the United States as a whole, but also in New York City and maybe done shelter in place 10 days earlier, there's some, some models that say we could have had 50% less fatalities. But I went out there, you know, I had hand sanitizer on me, but no masks, no gloves, wasn't necessarily anything that we were told to be thinking about. And I've basically made really bad photos of a closed university campus because there's nothing to photograph and the light was terrible and they needed the photos right away. And it was just, it was not a big thing. And shortly after that, and I don't remember when these assignments were, but I believe it was the next week I ended up having like four days of work. Yeah, it must have been the next week from the ninth on. I had four days of work that week covering COVID related stories um, for three different clients. And it started being a story about like whether people were still using the subway system. And again, there were only one or two reported cases in the New York area. And it was all about like, what are people's concerns? Then there were some basic coverage of other things. Then they decided that they were going to close down Broadway. And I pitched that to a client and I went out and photographed them turning the lights out on Broadway, which they literally don't turn the lights out. So it doesn't really look like anything in particular, but you know, clients just needed pictures of the Broadway district and all of these other things. And then the day after that, I went around to a bunch of other places that had been shut down, whether it was the Met Museum or whatever. And things were starting to really, people were starting to take it seriously. But again, nobody was wearing masks. I had a mask and I was wearing it, um, but felt really weird about it when nobody else was. And yeah. there was just no good guidance from 
from from editors, but also just from the state. You know, you're looking you're looking to the people that are in charge and those people are looking to the people in charge of them. And then we're looking to our politicians or whatever to sort of set the tone. And and nobody really knew what was going on. And I also was going to the mayor's press conferences uh, almost daily photographing. And they were starting to impose some social distancing. And um, that weekend, I think, was basically when they decided to shut everything down. Um, You know, all the restaurants and and they do. They did New York on pause. I guess is what they're calling it. Um, the next week, I photographed for another client on St. Patrick's Day to photograph the lack of parade and what was going around at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and then just general scenes around the city. And I, I made a photo that I really loved, sort of a, what I thought was a powerful scene of the person. Um, in charge of the cathedral the the priest that is in charge of the cathedral he was walking around outside with really nobody around and somebody came up to him and asked uh if he could receive a blessing and you know this moment happened there and it's an unusual thing to see in the first place but to have it on the steps of an otherwise empty iconic cathedral in new york was something really special yeah that that was that day and that night i went home and again, this was six or so assignments, probably in two weeks. Um, I went home and my chest was a little tight. And I just thought, oh, I, you know, I've probably been exerting myself too much and not a big deal. I do have um, an albuterol inhaler that I, I've learned to just keep around. Uh, there's been too many instances of journalists who um, have you know, breathing issues on assignment and get themselves into bad situations. So I have an albuterol inhaler and I didn't really think about it much. And then the next morning, my chest was still tight, but it wasn't anything bad. Um, it wasn't anything big. I've had upper respiratory infections and stuff throughout my life. So I, I know what bad breathing is like. But from that point on, I didn't have any assignments. So I just stayed at home and rested. And my health kind of went up and down and there, I had different symptoms and different things going on, but nothing that really screamed that I had coronavirus. And that was until the next Monday when all of a sudden I lost all taste. I had, uh, I was vomiting. And then in the evening, my breathing, which had been perfect that morning, my breathing deteriorated pretty rapidly. And I uh, spent the next you know, 24 hours talking to doctors and, and getting medications and stuff. And I, in the state of New York, you couldn't get a test at that time unless you were a medical professional or, or first responder. Yeah. But all the doctors told me I had coronavirus. I felt really weird. I felt really guilty. I, I felt like I was taking a lot of precautions, you know, for the, for those later assignments, I had masks. I had a client that gave me masks. I wore them when I was in a on the subway or in an enclosed space, I was disinfecting like crazy, using hand sanitizer, not touching my face. I was doing everything that we were supposed to be doing. And uh, I felt really kind of ashamed by the fact that I got sick because I was worried that editors might look at me and say, well, this guy took risks. You know, he didn't do the right thing. Yeah. And uh, and he got sick. And I really didn't feel like that was the case at all. Once I started to tell a couple editors and they reacted very kindly and were very concerned, I decided that I would I would say something publicly about getting sick in the hopes that other people would who maybe kind of felt the same way would maybe feel a little less 
concerned if they got sick with, you know, speaking out about it and, and reaching out for help and reaching out to the community for support, whatever it might be. Anyway, that, that's that's a long story to say that I, I worked a lot. I was out there. I didn't do anything that was super high risk and I still got sick, which then meant that for two weeks um, or actually more than two weeks, I was out of work. And even when I was cleared to go back in public, I still spent an extra week not taking any work because I wanted to continue to recover and also sort of deal with the mental aspect of the fact that I had a virus that for some people had been deadly and for me was, I guess, what they would call moderate, but I didn't have to go. Luckily, I didn't have to go to the hospital and I I survived, but the idea that I would have to go back into a world that was vastly different than the one that I left and that there's a possibility that that world would be full of sadness and tragedy and suffering that I was somehow lucky enough to avoid, but other people weren't. And I think that's something that we don't really think about enough is sort of the um, the mental toll of all of this. And I was already thinking ahead, wondering, okay, how would I be able to process if I was photographing dead bodies at a hospital, would I be okay to process that in the context of what I had experienced as well? So I took some extra time before I went out and got work. Yeah. And then to, and then took extra time beyond that because now very few people are hiring for work anymore. We're at the stage of this, this story where all the easy stuff has been photographed so much that nobody really is going to hire much for it anymore. They're not having people stand outside of hospitals when they're moving bodies into refrigerated trucks because that's been going on for a long time and, and nobody needs more photos of that because it's not really even newsworthy. It's just the status quo now. Yeah. So now it's not a lot of those kinds of stories. And then unless you're sort of a very talented and in some ways, lucky individual to be able to go deeper, get inside the hospital, see things that very few people are are seeing. Work is harder to come by because people are struggling to figure out what the deeper images in this situation are. Yeah. So I have worked some. I've worked some, and I've I've worked. I did my first shoot back was something that I did for myself. Um, otherwise, I haven't been going out unless I've been assigned. I think that's personally the the safest and smartest thing to do not just for yourself but for other people is you know not go chasing photos unless you have a good reason to be going out but i did go out i photographed a hasidic jewish wedding to sort of see the changes that were happening and continue a body of work i've been doing in the hasidic communities in new york and then otherwise just doing whatever few assignments have come up but there's there's not been that many and like i said it's a it's a very different world out there and i think there's a lot of people that are struggling to understand you know how can i get work how can i contribute and also how do you figure out what the story looks like when you can't be out in the world to figure out what the story looks like you have to be sitting at home and reading everybody else's reporting and looking at twitter and trying to figure out what what the next part of the story might be. And that's really hard when you're not out there seeing what's going on in the world for yourself and talking to people for yourself. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are struggling. I, I think this whole situation brings a lot of issues to light about the industry as a whole. But I think definitely like one of the hardest parts for us right now as photojournalists is that we are 
we're the we're the front line you know we're the ones on the ground that are supposed to be seeing and documenting what's happening and this is like an invisible issue in most aspects you know it's a disease or virus that we can't see then in addition to that the things we can see like you said are very repetitive in the sense that like now there's not much to photograph i mean i'm in the same boat where i kind of got a couple things and then it's just kind of like eh, like we've seen it like kind of thing you know like finding something different enough to get picked up is super hard right now but i also think it's really hard because you know the industry is kind of laid open in the sense that i mean from my opinion there's a lot of work that isn't happening and you know no one's really responsible for us as freelancers so it's kind of hard right now because a bunch of people are kind of finding ways to short term keep things together but i think this is going to be long term i mean i think this is you know i think work will start again for me pretty soon uh, down in the south but i think like it'll be different and i think the volume might be drastically different yeah i mean i i will say i give a lot of credit to the people in new york that have been able to consistently get um work off of things that it seems like they've pitched because there's a couple people that i've seen do do some things like photograph families at home and 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 that kind of stuff for the wires which to be able to figure out the access to those things is pretty um pretty incredible and they've been able to carve out a niche for themselves and and at first i kind of felt bad that i hadn't done that myself but then i also have to realize like this is a survival situation and yeah we can't be comparing ourselves against other people and so i'm trying to take the positive outlook and and you know be really impressed and and proud of the people that i know that have found those interesting and different photos to take and been able to get work that way instead of being down on myself for not being the one that that did it and I think those things are the there's the the bravery and heroism in a way. I guess some people might take exception to the the idea of like hero worship of journalists, but the the bravery of people being able to being willing to go into hospitals and photograph in hospitals, which is saying something because there's people that are doing that on a daily basis as a part of their job and putting themselves at high risk to save lives. Yeah. Um, and there's that, but then there's the other side of it, which is people that are smart enough and, uh, connected enough to make the photos that are unexpected, like kids playing in a home when their school has been canceled. But like you say, it's, you know, once you have one person doing that, it's hard to be the next person doing that. So you're trying to find your own thing. And, and it's really hard to find those find those ideas and those images and i guess that's what makes it extra impressive for the people that have been able to yeah and it's also extra hard like you said the fact that i have the exact same thoughts you do where i I normally i said this on another episode but i normally have the approach of if something happens of this scale i run towards it like when the tornadoes happened down here it was one in the morning i'm sitting in the bathroom hiding trying to not die and it turns out they missed so I was good, you know, Um, but my gut instinct said, go, go now. So I went, packed up my gear, packed everything I need for the day and I left and I went and started covering the tornadoes. This is the opposite. You know, you're you're adding to the problem if you go to one of these situations just to go in this situation. If I just say like, well, you know, I think I'm going to go try to make pictures of this testing center and I'll figure out something to sell it to later. That would be the absolute worst approach right now, because like you said, it's like you're you could be adding to the problem just by going and working for yourself while normally that's not the way we work normally like that's how we find stories that's how we'd find things like going to a shelter during a natural disaster you might be able to find that personal story of someone cleaning and their kids playing in the living room while their house is knocked down and stuff like that while this you can't do that i mean you have to just sit at home 
and basically, you know, hope, hopefully something shakes out in your local news or somebody says something online. But yeah, it's like it's damn near impossible to go find something interesting right now, which is hard because our, our livelihood relies on finding something interesting. And and something that's been really hard for me is like I have put a lot of stock in the last couple of years in my ability to be the person in front of somebody else that can make a passionate and respectful argument for why I think that a certain photo needs to be taken and why I would like their consideration to be able to let me into their lives to photograph that thing. Yeah. And that's something that is, again, really hard to do and something that if somebody is able to do it, I find it really impressive via social media or a phone call or whatever it is, um, you know, I've been trying to get access to some things in the Orthodox communities, the Hasidic communities in New York. And I, you know, I'll interact with people on Twitter and there's sort of like sort of activists and influencers on Twitter and the Hasidic community that I've engaged with to try to help me find certain things. And, um, there's often a disconnect where I'll, somebody will say, yeah, I can help you with that. And then they'll say, do you want me to send you pictures? And then I have to have yeah. the long conversation of, no, I need to take these pictures myself and um, I need access to this. And there's one, the logistical fears of letting somebody into your life and, and into your home right now and wanting to protect yourself and your family. And then there's also the fact that I can't be standing in front of them explaining to them why I am interested in their part of the story. And also in the, in, in the context of this, like the Hasidic communities in New York have gotten really bad publicity for the level of infections, both with COVID, but also measles. And there are a lot of people that don't kind of respect and understand the differences and aren't as good with the nuance of the situation. And it's really hard to not, to explain that you're not one of those people when you can't stand in front of them and and show how genuine you are and have that conversation. It's it's really hard to have that conversation in 140 characters or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so for the people that are able to sort through these things and in whatever situation they're photographing in, I again I'm really impressed. But I think it really does hamstring those of us who are you know we get our ideas for being out in the world we we get them from being out in the world and we we can't do that right now and that's that's the smart and safe thing to do is stay at home but it it can be really frustrating especially when like you say you you want to run towards the story you want to be contributing i think there's a lot maybe most journalists feel like their calling is to help people understand the world that they live in and you want to be doing something right now to contribute because i can't be in a hospital saving lives that i don't have that ability i don't have that background what i do have is my ability to provide stories and people help people understand and help people cope with the situation they're in and i think that's extra frustrating sitting at home and being ineffectual when it comes to doing the thing that you feel like you should be doing right now. I find so much reward in when I'm telling the stories that are out there, finding pieces of hope for people, you know, those human moments of those joyful things, which I'm seeing a lot from the small papers across the United States, which is really exciting to see them get some play, you know, whether it be a birthday parade or whatever that is. But it's also to find the truth in the situation and document all this. And it's again, it's just super frustrating. Going back to you in New York, though, and everything you've been going through, what has 
the last month or so felt like for you? I mean, you're two months now. You're not riding a wave, but it feels good when you get four or five, six days of work in a week. I mean, got to be kind of a roller coaster of like this big story. You're working a lot. And then now all of a sudden you're, I mean, long term, we're all in the same boat of kind of being scared about what's going on next in the business. But you personally, you're you're going through the illness and all that. What's it been like for you? And I guess what's the point you'd like to get across to people listening to this about what it feels like to be a journalist during this time? It's really interesting because I think it was that much more strange for me because six days of work in, you know, a week and a half or whatever it was is actually more than i usually get you know it's I, way more than i usually get man I, that's that's a good hustle for yeah. a two-week period and i had said to editors and you know i somewhat regret this now but i had said to editors pragmatically i expected that i would get sick um i, I sort of have a murphy's law sort of life where i just expect that something bad might happen anyway um no matter how many how many precautions I take. And I, I also am somebody that just for some reason gets sick a lot. And I talked to a lot of other photographers and they all sort of said the same thing, that they assume that because we have to be out there in the world working near people and around people that they would, they would get sick too. And there's been a lot of photographers who have actually gotten sick. Feel no guilt. I felt the exact same way. I was saying the same thing to people. And like a lot of my sports photo people were like friends were kind of like, you're nuts. And I'm like, no, I just like, I'm going to get this. Like if I'm covering the new, like, I don't know. I mean, I can stay six feet away. I can do everything. But it's like you're inserting yourself into high risk situations, even if they're, quote, low risk for the situations like the one church service that I covered that you saw the drive in one. Every son of a bitch there walked right up to me, like right up to me, to shake my hand. Like, you know, what I mean, it's like you can dive back as fast as you want. But it's like even in a, quote, low risk situation, you're still, you know, it's still higher risk than the average population. And at least down here, I can't get any of these supplies you're talking about. I have hand sanitizer. I have a gallon of hand sanitizer, like real hand sanitizer. I have all that stuff. I haven't seen an N95 mask anywhere. And I haven't been offered to have one sent to me. One client did. They couldn't get it to me fast enough for the assignment. So we didn't do it. But anyways, sorry. I just want to interject that I feel the exact same way. So I didn't want you to feel out on a, on a peninsula there. So And it's also just like a, a practical thing in general for the entire population. I mean, this was a conversation that I was having with people when... Germany had just said that they expected 60% of their population to get the coronavirus. So if you have a above average chance of getting it, and then you're also a person that's out in the world more than the average person, it's just compounded. So, so I told editors, like, look, I want to work as much as I can before I get sick, and then I'll get back at it once I'm recovered. And now I think the regret comes from the fact that at the time, we knew it was bad and that people were getting sick, but I don't think we had a lot of super evocative stories about the experience of getting COVID. And also at the time, a lot of the people that were in the Seattle area that were dying were elderly. I did not realize how scary and difficult getting it would be until I did get it. But I that, you know, those six or whatever assignments in that short period, short period of time was a lot. And it's also odd because I've never been able to tell an editor, I want extra work right now. And the yeah. the work sort of shows up. Never. So it was never. a very, very weird thing. And then all of a sudden I'm sick and I'm at home for two and a half weeks and or more. And 
there's no there's no work whatsoever it's it was extra strange because i wasn't going through the process of preparing myself for that or understanding what the situation in the world was i was going through the process of trying to heal and take care of myself and surviving and also very luckily talking to a lot of friends that had reached out because they were concerned and keeping myself busy with that and so all of a sudden it was like you run into one wall and that wall is getting sick and being in rough shape and you're you're starting to starting to walk again and and get your bearings and then all of a sudden there's a second wall that you didn't see that you ran into yeah um and it's i the other thing too is everybody is going through a variation of this and there's a lot of people that are people that maybe relied on editorial portrait work or commercial work and commercial portrait work and lifestyle stuff that occasionally do work for the same outlets that we we work for, whether it's the Times or somebody else, um, you know, magazines, that kind of stuff. And they occasionally work for those people, but they can make the bulk of their income off of something else. Now, the only people that are hiring are the editorial outlets. And so you have just this huge number of people that are trying to fight for scraps. Yeah. So it's not only that the work isn't there, but there's just so many people in the world that are trying to find work from a much more limited pool. And so for the people that are going through this right now, I would say it might sound cliche and I'm, I don't know, maybe it might not resonate with everybody, but I've had a variation of this conversation with a lot of people. I know somebody in South Dakota who's going through a big life-changing event right now where uh, they may lose their ranch because of some uh, family issues and uh, some legal fees that they have to pay. And they may lose a portion of their ranch or the entirety of their ranch. And they're worried about you know, what it would mean to be a person that has lost their livelihood and what they feel called to do and have to start over and do something else. And the thing that I said to them and that I've been telling friends that are going through sort of variations of the same uncertainty about what the future might hold is hold on to the idea that we are all going through this and you're not alone in your experience. It doesn't make the experience any easier, but I've felt like it helps to keep in mind that I am not falling behind. Yeah. Nobody else is rushing ahead of me. Nobody is, you know, if if they're taking good care of themselves, they're not generally coming away with this uh from this situation with a booming business and a changed set of dozens of skills that'll set them way apart from the rest of the world post pandemic. We're all going through upheaval in various forms and if if right now is difficult for you and if you find that in the future you're going to have to change what you're doing, your business plan, your business model, your career, whatever it is, you're not going to be the only person and now is the perfect time to be thinking about these things and at the end of the day it'll it, it'll work out. It, it might not be smooth, it might not be easy, but I just hold on to the idea that I'm not alone in the experiences that I'm having and it doesn't like I said, it doesn't make it easier, but it is some level of comfort because the world isn't passing you by. I think a lot of photographers see all these other people having successes in in a normal world, you know, yeah. people picking up big campaigns or big assignments and having a, a long project that they worked on run in a major publication. And you have this feeling like 
you're not accomplishing things yourself and you see all the accomplishments of everybody else going on on a continual basis and you're stagnant and the world is passing you by. The world isn't passing us by anymore. No, the whole world's on pause. Yeah. And so if you are struggling, keep in mind that you're not falling behind and there are a bunch of other people that are struggling with you and the world won't be able to function by discarding everybody who has struggled in this time. You can't just ignore everybody that is struggling and and forget about them and move on without them. There will be solutions and there and the world will be different, but you're not alone. No. You're not. I I posted the other day that there was like 19% of people who took a voluntary survey on lens rentals are considering or in the process of leaving photography or video. And I think that's going to be like a a big reality to this situation is that people are going to have to change careers, whether it be the rancher, whether it be, you know, people in the service industry, whether it be photographers. Like, I think all of our world is going to change heavily on what we do for work after this. And that's scary. And I have personal problems with some of it. But I think if you're out there and you're listening to this or, you know, you're in this career field that like there's no shame in not doing this. Like a lot of people have quit this career for a million reasons or any career for a million reasons. This was difficult before. I guess this is getting back to what I was kind of saying about the industry is that like this industry was hard to make it in before all of this. It was hard to make a living. It was a really uphill battle every day for every year I've been in it, which is going on 10 years now. The cliff got a little steeper <laughs> to say the least and it's it's hard because we are highly affected because everything we do is in person and you can't be in person right now in any field whether that's weddings or news or anything i think if it's 19 percent of the community is considering a career change or i honestly think not enough people are being pragmatic about it right now same, same. i i i think the number is going to be much higher it's going to have to be much higher i think a lot of people are and i don't I don't necessarily know that right now is the time to make wholesale changes. I think now is the time to be thinking about what your options are, depending on the the myriad of ways that this uh, post-pandemic world could look. But I think 19% of the industry uh, leaving is is actually probably a very low number right now. And I, I hate to be a pessimist, but I think that just like I was sort of negatively pragmatic about the chance of me getting COVID, I think you have to be pretty pragmatic right now about what the post-pandemic world is going to look like. Um, You've got models and influencers learning how to light their own photos so that they can do they can do e-com work in their apartments. Yeah, because the world still needs people to be posting, you know, products for sale for the few people that are buying things now. And you can't have a model and a stylist and a photographer and a digitech and an assistant all in one space. So brands, and I've, I've heard about this a, a couple instances of brands sending things just directly to models and models learning how to photograph themselves so that they can keep the industry going. If these are the, these are the sort of changes that we're going to see, there's going to be a lot of changes in the photo industry in general. And, and uh, it's going to take out a, a larger than 20% of the industry, I think. Yeah, and that 20% is just anyone who does photography and video so that's not journalists and i'm a hundred percent with you i think a lot of people are just not far enough down the road i think i have a lot of friends in all kinds of disciplines and i just i think it's going to be a rough road ahead and i think at the very least if you are going to stay in this industry which i think a lot of people will obviously you need to figure out a way to diversify the way you make money and if that's all in photography that's certainly one thing but like man i know so many people that a few weeks into this were like up against the wall and it was just like 
how'd you deal with like the month of December? I mean, you know, like every year I got a month where I got no work between roughly December 15th and January. Like the whole country basically shuts down. Nobody's doing ad shoots. Nobody's doing news. I mean, everybody's off. It's slim pickings for a month. And if it's just one month, if it's just that one month, you're doing really well. Cause I mean, I know, I know some big name photographers, not this past year, but the year before I talked to somebody who is a pretty well-known photographer Actually, I talked to two and they both basically said the same thing that from December to February, they had zero assignments. Oh, yeah. No, it, I, I mean, I will literally have nothing during that time. But yeah, no, it is dry. Like we all joke about it. Like I got an ad video job in January and we were like shocked. We were like, wow, I can't believe someone orchestrated this in the month of January, you know. But no, yeah. I, I totally. So that's the one thing that I think is kind of not positive by any means, but kind of eye opening to me is that like, if if you were on the fence about staying in this a few weeks into this, like you were probably not in the right career field. And I think a lot of people in this career field were kind of not in the right career field. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's so hard to make money, man. It's just like so hard to make a living at this on the wages we get paid. You have to be really, really good, you know, whether in any field of photography. I mean, if you're a wedding photographer, like you got to be real good. And right now, like I can't imagine if you lost an entire year of weddings, which is very probable right now, especially in the Northeast down here in the South, you know, maybe by June, you're, you're back in business. But like, I think it's going to be weird for a lot of aspects of photography for the whole year. So I'm with you, man. I think over 20% is not pessimistic. I think it's very realistic. I, I just, you know, I have, I have two thoughts about that. And one, again, I'm like, try despite the despite the pragmatism trying to be positive, like there was somebody early on in a group I was on on in on Facebook who said kind of lambasted people for not having six months of income set aside at, at all times um, to be able to make it in the industry. And I think while that's ideal and would be nice, if you're just starting and you know you just got out of college um, and you're you're talented or you just made a career change and you're talented and you don't have that savings, I don't think a lot of people are coming out of college with six months of income saved up to be able to, to make it. And then you have an act of God happen you know, you can't you can't just say, you know, you guys ha- don't deserve to be in the industry. And I, that's not what you're saying. I'm not saying that. But I, it really it really it, it really, really made me angry because I it, the person was basically saying you deserve whatever you have coming to you. And yeah. I think I think there are some people that are their passion for what we do masks the practicality of the sustainability of doing that. And I may be one of them because the first two years I was in New York, I did not do a single thing besides editorial work. And I was able to make a living, not put a ton of money away or, or make a great living, but I was able to make, make it in the city, which is, is saying a lot, but I realized if I want to go anywhere and else and with my life, I need to start doing other things. It's not as easy as snapping your fingers and doing those things. And I yeah. still really struggle. And I know that I have skills that I could be using in different ways, but haven't been able to, to do that. But I do think there are people that, like I said, their passion for what we do blinds them to the practicality of doing it. And it'll be sad because there's a lot of people that are talented and have that passion that might not be in it. I'm I'm not even saying that I'm going to be in this in a, a year from now, because I just don't know. We don't know what's going to be out there. 
Oh yeah. Um, I don't know where I where I'm going with this no, necessarily, I, but I think yeah, I think to be explicit, I I don't in any way think anybody deserves this or everyone should have had a six month nest egg. I think that's one of the huge problems with this industry is that there's a bunch of people that were handed a six month nest egg when they left college. I mean, I don't know how many people I went to college with that you know were able to move to New York or take an internship that I'd never financially would have been able to do. I I had to get an internship that paid. I had to move home. I moved home for years because that was the only way to learn the craft, gain clients and work. I mean, hell, I lived at home for years because and that's in a small town. That's not Long Island or North Jersey or D.C. area, which some people, you know, they move home, but they're living in Long Island or North Jersey. It's like, well, yeah, you're moving home to the most the best market in the country, you know? So I think it's like, it's hard balance. But I also think that, you know, I have personal problems with a lot of this industry basically pitching and selling this on the passion. I, I stopped going to some conferences because it was no talk of the reality of the business. It was like all this, oh, we go off, we save the world with our pictures, or it was like saving your newsroom. And then there's like no in between. And it's like, you know, there's a balancing act. At the end of the day, this is a business, you know, the New York Times is a business. You know, all these places are businesses that run and operate on business decisions. In 2008, 2009, we saw that and they let everybody go at all these papers. So now here we are in 2020. And I think a lot of us came into this business based on passion. But a lot of people run it on that passion more on the business side. And I think like those people are at a reckoning point right now. And I don't know who they are. I don't know where they are in the industry. But like at the end of the day, you're also a business, not just the people paying you. That's been really hard for me and seeing some friends basically get left out to dry right now. And more so in the smaller markets, you know, where they're just like, I can't get anything to shake out anywhere. And it's like, what do you say? You know, like not everyone has six months saved up. I don't have six months saved up, you know, (laughs) like at all. I, I would say the one again positive and redeeming thing that we do have with the with the situation that we're all in as an industry is that I don't know any more tight knit industry than this. Totally. And yeah. And um, you know, I know even in adjacent industries, I know the commercial world of photography, people don't necessarily know each other by name if you're across the country. But I could tell you Kendrick Brinson is out doing great work and she's as far away across the continental U.S. as possible. Um, and I, I know who she is and I know what she's up to. And I know that if she needed something um, or somebody else needed something from her, she would step up. You know, I had somebody down in... Dallas, a, a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in probably six, nine months, if not more, when he found out that I was sick, he Venmoed me $25 so I could buy myself some food, you know, some takeout and have somebody deliver it to my place because I couldn't go out. And that's going to be the thing that I think will help to some extent stem the the bleeding of how bad this might get for the industry is we, we have a finite number of resources. There's a, a finite number of assignments. There's finite number of grants. But you have people like Melissa Little shipping out masks from the MPPA and they're surgical masks, but they're still masks and they're going to be helpful for people. Yeah. And again, it's a finite resource and they're getting shipped out to people that need them who just raised their hand and said they needed them. So with all the doom and gloom and the uncertainty that's going on, I think we're in some ways uh, as a community much more well positioned because we're going to be there for each other. And it's sort of like what I see in South Dakota is there are some neighbors that really have beefs with each other, whether it's, you know, they're your 
your cattle come onto my land or, you know, you don't fence properly or you bought the land that I wanted to buy and now I don't have that land or whatever. And they don't get along. But when there's a wildfire out on somebody's property, everybody comes running, whether or not you get along because you're all in this together and you have a vested interest in each other. And I think the photojournalism industry specifically, not just the photo industry as a whole, but the photojournalism industry is the same way. People checking in on me, me checking in on people who came to me and told me that they were sick as well, but they didn't want to say it publicly. Um, People texting each other, seeing how they're doing when they're not sick or letting each other know. Like yesterday I got an antibody test and I let somebody know that, hey, you can go get this antibody test because I know you think you might have had had this and you don't know for certain. You know, we're we're all looking out for each other in a way that I think very few other people would ever experience. And and maybe that's the one thing that'll get a lot of people through this. I don't I don't know. I think I totally agree. I mean I have I don't have a ton of friends, but I got a friend in every city in the country, which is kind of cool. And I think that's like the neatest thing. And I totally have been doing the same. I've totally been checking in on friends. I've been texting friends in Cleveland to Poland and all the way back again. You know, I got a friend in Ireland that got stuck in Spain and I was texting him and being like, hey, what are you doing? How's it going? You know, kind of thing. And it's that is probably the one of the most refreshing things. And I think you're ending this on a much more positive note than maybe I had. And I don't want to come off as negative as maybe I sound. I'm just I'm like a business person and my heart and I get very frustrated with how this industry treats the people that are trying to make it better as every day and that's yeah I think that's what's really frustrating me right now and I got a friend who is in a similar boat to me he he's actually completely transitioned to commercial work he and I talk about the business side of things and he's just like this is laying bare everything that was wrong when you have people at papers who can't get masks or sanitizer and they're still going out to work and their paper doesn't understand well I don't understand why you're upset that you're not getting this stuff It's got a lot of flaws, but it is tight knit. It is super positive. And it is, we all do have each other's back, which is super refreshing. I imagine other careers are dealing with similar issues and they don't have that super positive aspect. I went through like, and I think this is maybe the stages of grief thing that a lot of people are talking to uh, talking about. I think it's really important to have accountability and try to hold the industry to a high standard and make sure that people are um, taking care of each other and doing the right thing. After I got sick, there were a lot of things that I was upset about. And I sort of went through the burn it all to the ground kind of phase where I just, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, everything's screwed up everything's effed and i'm i you know want no part of it and i'm gonna call it out when i see it and i'm gonna tell everybody else about it and and i i had that that level of anger and then i realized why is it worth my time and emotional energy right now to be that angry when the people that i'm angry at aren't investing any emotional energy in and their behavior or whatever, they're just going about the situation they're in, it, it serves me nothing because nothing is going to change right now. And so the, my energy can best be used to take care of myself and keep moving forward. And that's not to say that we can't expect more of uh, the industry, of the uh, of our readerships, of people supporting journalism, of people understanding that the journalism isn't the en- enemy. There's We can expect all those things. Yeah. But just like anything, I don't think we're going to get through the situation by expending all our energy trying to burn it all to the ground. No. You just got to continue to take care of yourself and keep moving forward and, and, and be hopeful. And I guess the last thing I'll say is like I was talking to somebody two nights ago. We were, we were talking about 
romance. And I, I said that I was a hopeless romantic. And they said to me, I pre- prefer the term hopeful romantic. And then the next day I heard somebody say something about turning hopelessness into hopefulness. And it was, you know, it's one of those things, two days in a row, somebody was talking about the same thing. And I thought maybe that's a sign, you know, right now we're in a hopeless place, but we can be hopeful about the future. We can look at all the positive things that that may help in that time and and not worry so much about all the negatives. My, my favorite analogy, and I think I told you this, is of all people from John Mayer. He had a thing about uh, on one of his on his Instagram TV show about dealing with the anxiety of right now and make sure making sure that we process information, whether it's brand new information or new information that's part of the thing that's already been going on. He said, if you have your favorite ice cream shop and it closes down You can be sad about the fact that your favorite ice cream shop closed down, or you can be sad about each individual flavor of ice cream at that ice cream shop that you can no longer get. And you can be sad about them as an individual event that you can no longer get Rocky Road. And I'm going to be sad about that for a little bit. And then, oh, but there's also mint chocolate chip. I can't get mint chocolate chip. And I'm going to be sad about that. And then once you get over that, then you're sad about the vanilla. And then you're sad about the chocolate. And you can go through life right now thinking about everything that's going on as its own individual sad thing. Or you can understand that we're going through a massive tragedy and while every person that dies and every tragedy that happens within that is sad we can't let them overwhelm us individually we have to kind of understand that this is the life that we're going to be living right now and um if if we continue to manage our perspectives and manage our our mental health and manage our uh, our expectations for each other and for the industry and what manage our hopes for what the future might be we're going to get through it a lot easier and that's where you start leaning on each other and and helping each other and expecting maybe just a little bit more out of your friends and family because that's what we need right now and you you return the favor but um it's all about managing right now and i think um i think it's going to be an interesting couple months but uh you got to keep a little bit of hope way better way to end it than me talking about how all of us are broke uh and again uh i'm trying not to be that negative guy but i sometimes am mark thank you so much for taking the time man uh this was a lot of fun and a good conversation uh how can people find you and how can they hire you and uh get your work and all those great things my website should i spell out my name i don't know oh man i'm gonna put this in i'm leaving this in by the way i'm putting this in the podcast notes so just go to the podcast notes on your app and i will put his address in but you can say it and so they okay. don't spell well, it out. No. it's just uh i know it's probably the the least helpful marketing thing to have a, a really confusing to pronounce and spell last name but my my website is just my last name or my first name lastname.com so my full name.com my instagram is the same and those are basically the two things that you would need to know if you're hiring a visual journalist so look those up if you can figure out what my name is awesome man well i hope you have a good week and i hope you have a good afternoon man and uh thanks so much for taking the time once again yeah thanks for having me man take care now we have Tom Brenner. Tom Brenner is a freelance photojournalist based in Washington, D.C., 
and he is currently on a contract with Reuters, the wire service. Tom has been working in the White House, in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, like all these places for a few years now. And he's, you know, been intern at places, freelancer. He's covered the politicians as they fly around the country, campaigning, all of the top DC type jobs that you could imagine. Tom, what has the last two months looked like? I mean, you were on the campaign trail. You were in Iowa a little while ago. Now, all of a sudden, coronavirus comes, and it seems like the D.C. world kind of shifted seismically. So, uh, first off, thanks for having me. Um, It's great to catch up with you again. Everything kind of just fell off into a, a a long halt. We had just gotten off of uh, impeachment with the president and in mixed in with that with the campaign trail you know i had been on the road quite a bit and on top of impeachment the president still had traveled from time to time to various places so we were on the road a lot we we're doing a lot of different things and coronavirus was kind of on the back burner so to speak as sort of a problem that was starting on the other side of the world and making its way into europe at the time and expanding through china and it was not until maybe until March or so that we kind of really woke up to realizing that this is coming here and we're going to have to deal with this the best we can. That sort of rearranged everything to where every section of a newspaper, everybody, every different beat was all focusing on coronavirus. It's something we really hadn't seen. I'd never seen it before uh, in my you know young time here. Yeah, I don't think anyone has seen it. I mean, that was the biggest thing when it started. It was like, uh, this is a maybe once in a lifetime kind of situation or something like that. I mean, it's so oh, no doubt. So amazingly different for us or anybody. No, we, that's something we hadn't, we really hadn't seen. And, and it, politically here, you know, it was every, all the points sort of led to what the executive branch was going to say. You know, that was sort of the directional figurehead on, on how this country is going to react to uh, the coronavirus. And that changed up, that shook up all of the coverage beats uh, as the members on Capitol Hill all, you know, everybody went on recess. Everybody had uh, taken measures to be, to vote electronically uh, by proxy, they call it here. Uh, so you could, you know, you'd see all of these buildings basically shutter for a month long. And so coverage had been sort of dwindled down to pretty much the White House or anything outside of that. A lot of it feature hunting, a lot of it outside. And any time that any politician made a statement, made any kind of a you know gesture towards coronavirus uh, reaction, that was a immediate high demand, and it wasn't that uh, it, didn't, it wasn't something that came often much at all. Yeah, and it, what's kind of interesting is that for the last few years, the president hasn't really done the East Wing press conference sort of thing like i remember that was something we talked about last time we saw each other was that like they used to have like pretty often i mean historically you'd have like these pressers in the east wing and we all see those pictures and we know what those are and now all of a sudden one of the things that's changed is you're getting those daily with these coronavirus updates right yes uh so traditionally some of the more classical times you'd see the press secretaries, Sarah Huckabee Sanders or uh, Sean Spicer from a, a few years back, that became a more, uh, th- those are televised every day. It was the president's briefings that we'd hear about. There'd be a lot of uh, drama, a lot of excitement, a lot of different things going on. We would never see the president there. Now, every single day, the president's out talking to all the reporters. And uh, it's become, I think we're on 45 days now in a row. Where we've seen him 
And as that timeline has has drawn has gone on, uh, we've cut down our numbers as journalists and how we report on what that uh, what's being said at those meetings. You know, as the CDC and Institute of Health have come out with guidelines on how to cover these things, we have to cover them with all the social distancing guidelines in mind. Uh, and with that being said, those things are entirely on national television, and we need to be sure that we're following the protocol as much as we can, so that way we can still stay in contact with the president as he delivers, you know, information to the people, and you know, so we can continue on with delivering the, those messages as best we can. Which I mean, these rooms, buildings, all of this stuff are not really conducive to that. I mean, I mean, one of the things that D.C. is known for is like the D.C. scrum. I mean, in front of a someone testifying to Congress or the president or whatever. I mean, it's usually like I mean, I've worked in D.C. a tiny bit, nothing compared to you. But I remember like every day we were shoulder to shoulder somewhere. And, you know, there's 12 of us shoved into a 15 foot wide space. So now to be six feet apart, like how is that adapted, how you're working and how you're shooting? It's uh, it's definitely difficult. Uh, we there's a wide variety. There's a gamut of photographers, journalists, like various categories of basically the there, there's tiers on based on different organizations and outlets who covers what the most, uh, how often those outlets are there. And that's dictated within co- some of the correspondence associations on who can be there and and when other places can be there to attend these briefings. We want to make sure that, you know, obviously that we don't keep it as closed to, you know, a limited amount of outlets, but some alternate days have been taking place where we'd say, you know, different group, group A and group B, uh, for instance, you would rotate in and out and we keep it down to these low numbers where it was a packed briefing room to start for the coronavirus, coronavirus briefings. Now you can see in the pictures, it's, it's got to be down to, you know, under a dozen maybe or so during these. And a lot of times when you're there with your other photographer colleagues, you, based on social distancing, you can't move. You can't jump over immediately like you could in previous times when you said, oh, that would be a great picture. I need to go over there and make that frame too, that I could see something good happening. These times, these days, you'd have to you know, bite the bullet. You know that that other person who's already there, they're going to get that picture. They're kicking your butt and you know that you might miss out on something. And that's just the the luck of the draw sometimes. It's just how it is. I mean, it's a tight space and it's hard to move as it is, but now literally not being allowed to move is just a, a whole new, a whole nother level of challenge. Definitely strategy. It's definitely about, you know, what kind of gear you're bringing and, you know, you have to kind of lining up your putts before you start the day. You're thinking about who's going to be there. And one of the best parts about this town is that every single picture is usually on the internet. You can sort of backtrack your steps as to where your colleagues were and where you were at the time when you made the pictures that they made. And maybe you can learn from things that you didn't think went well. Uh, So that can kind of help build guidance for your day, you know, coming forward. Non-photographically, you guys have had to go through different processes when going to some of these events and speaking and and just everything. Like, what has it been like getting in and out of these buildings? What what has it been like? You know, what are some of the precautions and things they're taking outside of the social distancing as you guys work? So we've broken down our schedules where, you know, at times, depending on the news of the day or the news of the week, you wouldn't necessarily stay in the same building, you know, For me, I could be uh, on the White House three days and it it was planned for the whole week. And then they said, oh, actually, there's news at the State Department. Can you go right now? Somebody else is going to go to the White House now for to be as safe as we can out of respect to everybody else. 
we're sticking with you know one person who can cover the White House from the beginning to the end of the day. And if you can cover that all week, you can you can see if there was any symptoms afterwards. If you would felt anything different from being in the room in the building with all your colleagues, that can be you, you can get a coronavirus test by going to the White House now. Yeah, which I have not gotten. Every day when you go into the premises, you get a temperature check by a government doctor. And then every time before you go into an event with the president, you get your temperature checked as well. Yeah. So sometimes up to two, three, four times a day, you're getting your, your head checked just in case. Uh, like you said, it's very tight in there and any almost any room in the White House that I've been to. It's close quarters. And you're working beside everybody and you know nobody wants to get sick, of course. I think a lot of the listeners won't know that there's actually like a press workroom in the White House. So when you enter, you walk and, and you walk yes. through security and all that and you go up. And if you ever watch TV news, there's like the camera setups and they literally have like spots for the TV cameras that they pay for. And then you go up and there's a there's like a like a workroom and it's really, really tight. Have you guys adapted to that or is it kind of like, OK, we're all in here, we're good and we're going to just work like normal or? We, we, you know, we try to keep it as normal as we can, but yes, it is, uh, at the time it was as accommodating as it could be to house a lot of different outlets. It's pretty impressive if you looked at it on the grand scale of things, but overall we've, you know, a lot of outlets have also gone home, have had their, uh, networks go home. For instance, uh, when working with everyone, because there's so many TV outlets per se, there's what's called a pool day and it's your pool day. So one network, because they can't accommodate all of the TV stations to be in the same room at once. They keep it down to one network. It's on a rostered schedule for like a month long. You can see whose day is what day. So say, for instance, for conversation purposes, Tuesday is CNN's day. Well, CNN covers every event with the president, and they feed out all of that footage to all of the other networks that are also in that pool. So whereas normally it would be someone's pool day and the other networks would reside in case there was a bigger event, they could cover it. Now... All those places that don't have the duty of pool day, they go home. Their offices are dark, doors open, wow. ready to be cleaned. It's a very quiet place. It's a lot different. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of mingling, uh, you know, in the kitchen area or you go where you got to go and then you go back to your seat. Yeah. So in, in the addition to this, like the D.C. area is shut down a bit more than some parts of the country, a bit less than others. What kind of other stories have you been working on? What kind of other things are they looking for? I, I mean, I'm personally finding with my assignments and my editors that there there's there's kind of like a I won't say like weariness or tiredness, but it's kind of like we're getting a little repetitive now that we're closing in on two months of this. Oh, absolutely. And like, so how are how are you guys and you finding, like what do they want you to go get, I guess, basically? You know, you can only shoot pictures of gloves or pictures of masks so many times. I'm digging as much as I can into, whether it's Twitter, Reddit, uh, the local papers, or I think about bigger topics that I know, like reoccurring bigger timeline events that would occur annually. So what's... Fourth of July going to look like, you know, Ocean City, Maryland, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, big beach towns that depend on the D.C. area, Baltimore area commuters that come out on vacation. They have houses out there. What does that look like when the governor shuts that all down? What does that look like when people are protesting around the state house, the Capitol, to reopen the state economy? Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of upcoming things you got to be on your toes about for on your feet, rather uh, running around chasing what's going to come at you when it's time. And, you know, people are trying to get the economy to reopen. People are 
complaining. You can see that from anywhere from message board to any of these smaller communities outside the area that's being hit the worst. Yeah, what do those holidays look like? And and you have to go in and, and how people are, you know, adjusting to things as simple as sports or even learning, getting an education at home. What are kids doing? You know, uh, distance learning through video calls with their teachers and their yeah. classes. Well, okay, that that could seemingly work, but what happens in the low-income communities where the children, the students don't have laptops, don't have well-working internet? You know, there's going to be kids that are falling behind in the school year. They can't afford to keep up. You know, you got to draw out all those ideas. And a lot of that too is we we meet with our team members in the organizations and share ideas. You know, it's good. We're, we're all coming together to try and make this thing work and sharing ideas with the team has been making that a lot better too. Yeah. And the other thing that's been obviously very different this year is, I mean, we were in full campaign swing. I mean, you guys were traveling and, uh, you know, you primarily with president, but I mean, people were traveling to campaign events, covering campaign events. I was covering campaign events a few weeks ago uh, before this started and had some more kind of lined up. And now uh, effectively campaigning has, I mean, not effect, not, yeah, not effectively, literally campaigning has stopped uh, for two months, which I don't know. I mean, I'm not a historian, but that's got to be one of the first time that's happened in history. I mean, they were going full swing and now there's no events. There's nothing to go to. It's, you know, it's all digital, so to speak. It's it's weird. Yeah. I, and also, too, this is the first time I've covered a, a full campaign from start to finish. Uh, I had bits and pieces of it in college. I, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, there's going to be I think that there's there's a lot of hope with with proxy voting, uh, mailing in ballots. I think there's going to be a lot of conversation about, you know, voting interference on that. Yeah. I see a lot of stories about errors and about voter suppression, people that can't afford to mail in or can't come in person to cast their vote if they're sick, if they, you know, with the economy the way it is, uh, that could really have a bad effect on our voting process and could be susceptible to other dangers like we might have seen worse than 2016. Yeah. Uh, to tell you the truth, I really don't know where this is going to go at all. Yeah, no. And we we should be looking at somewhat soon the RNC and DNC, the conventions and things like that this summer. Which and, have already been pushed back. Yeah. Into August and September, I think. Yeah, I believe it. And so it's like there's so many big picture things that have kind of shifted from a day to day, what does your approach look like? What's some of the things you're bringing with you that you maybe wouldn't, you know, uh, both at the White House or, or other areas? Like what what kind of equipment and gear and things like that are you are you kind of shifting to or whether that be photographic or otherwise? I think I'm, I'm bringing a more variety of gear with me. I usually uh, like if I was on the Capitol, he'll be I'd like to bring two camera bodies, 35 millimeter and a 135 millimeter lens. Keep it light, keep it simple. Now I'm with maybe a 24 to 70 and a 100 to 400 and extenders and a and a 400 or a 200 to 400 millimeter lens in my car. Because you know, I'm just trying to net anything I can get while I'm outside. And one of the benefits of having the car in an area with now dramatically less traffic is uh, I can just stop for features almost anywhere. I mean, oh, it, yeah. there's, there's like no parking problems. I have <laughs> not seen the meter maids around in weeks and the same, all my coworkers have been agreeing like, oh, this is great. You know, you, you can just park wherever you want. And if it's a last minute stop, you don't have to worry about a ticket. 
It's always the silver linings. <laughs> so, yeah, you got to look at the bright side. You know, I can get around really quickly and I can, you know, guarantee, almost guarantee I'll be somewhere on time on a dime if I need to be there. I think I, I, I've been looking more at the city statistics of where the hardest hit areas are with the cases. You, you always stay in touch with the people that helped you out earlier on, the PIOs, the military contacts, the fire department, EMS, you know, never stop being in touch with those as I was taught in school. And I'm, as I'm sure you were also taught, oh, you yeah. know, uh, just you got to keep everybody in your Rolodex up to speed. And, and those people that you were friends with a while back, you know, they're going to help you out now. They're going to get you into those ride alongs. They're going to get you into the funeral homes. Sadly, those are the things that we're looking at right now. And that's a big reality of this area. You know, you got to stay on top of that and look at the rippling effects of how this thing is hitting the areas the worst. This was awesome. Do you, is there anything else you think we didn't talk about? No, I, I, I'm actually curious, you know, what, how is the conversation like around your area in Tennessee, like looking outward, you know, versus you, know, you kind of had this, I think 2016 and onward sort of reverberated the conversation about, you know, maybe coastal elitism, if you've heard that term around. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the opinions of, you know, maybe Midwesterners, Southerners, that these rules that are seen in the most severe, put in in the most severe hit places, and how they're affecting areas that like the Midwest that maybe aren't hit as bad, but it's really hurting, you know, local economies tenfold more so than maybe it would in DC or New York. Yeah. And how's that how's that outlook from from your way looking towards us? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll preface this with saying Tom and I are both very apolitical. So we're definitely looking at this from an objective standpoint. And uh, if anybody takes any political implications from us talking about this, uh, throw those out the window. I, I will say that uh, I think down here it's a little different. Uh, there was some protesting and stuff like that a few weeks ago, but Nashville kind of jumped on board with the social distancing pretty quick. When you actually looked at some of the graphs and charts I saw, a lot of the major cities in the South kind of jumped on right away and more of the rural communities did not. I know when this was starting, I was like joking with friends that I'd go to the grocery store and I literally would be like doing all the things right. I'm keeping my distance. I'm washing my hands. I got the hand sanitizer. And then I'd be like, watch a guy like lick his hand to open the produce bag and then like proceed to walk into someone. And I'm like, OK, guys, like <laughs> I'm doing everything right. And I'm watching these people do this. So uh, it was a little bit different at first. The governor hopped on pretty quick as well here, shut the whole state down. And right now we are opening back up this week. This is April 28th and I'm recording this. So yesterday we reopened restaurants. And that is um, outside of the top five or six counties of population. So like that's like Nashville, Knoxville, Memphis, um, maybe Chattanooga. I can't remember the whole list. So Nashville, like restaurants are still closed. Broadway is still closed. Non-essential businesses are still closed. But tomorrow, non-essential businesses will be open across the state. Again, outside of those top major areas. And yeah, I mean, I've seen some signs on lawns even in Nashville, which is, I don't know how it is politically. Some parts are red, some parts are blue, but like I've even seen signs on lawns that like, you know, every job is essential, like stuff like that. But I think it's a lot more like low key, but I think everyone's kind of like, I think the the patience is a little bit shorter down here. I think like people sure. are kind of ready more so. We've also had a lot less cases. I mean, we've only had like 120 or 150 people die when I checked the statistics yesterday. Yeah. And I think like nine or so thousand cases across the whole state and like 45 or 4,600 of those were recovered. So it's it hits different. I mean, you know, most of Nashville, most of Tennessee is pretty rural, just like where I'm from in Pennsylvania. Sure. It's really rural. So it's like, I, I mean, I think people are kind of like, 
all right, do we need to be doing everything that Manhattan's doing is kind of the vibe. But everybody seems to be kind of keeping up with it. You know, like I said, in the cities, it they jumped on it pretty quick and people are pretty strict here. And, you know, restaurants are still doing takeout and all that stuff. So it seems like a mix. But I think maybe the patience is a little bit shorter than from what I've heard from people up north, you know. Definitely not the New York City subway system in Nashville, of yeah, course. And yeah. It's not as packed together as different cities. Yeah, and I think, like, they've been testing pretty heavily here. I, I don't know what it is statistically, but uh, right now, five days a week in the counties I've checked, you can go get tested, and that's with no symptoms now. Tennessee was one of the first ones to open up to, like, no symptom testing. Oh, interesting. That I photographed that. It was last weekend they opened that up to be no symptom testing, so I think they're doing everything, but what's wild about Tennessee is that we've also had two major tornadoes in this past month and a half. So Cookville and Nashville got hit with a heavy tornado, uh, like 25 or 26 deaths in that tornado. And then April 13th, we had another tornado go through the Chattanooga area and killed, I think, about a dozen people. And I actually I went I went to both for work and they were both just like devastated. It was horrible. So this governor you know, it'd be a great photo essay, but this governor was basically dealing with two tornadoes and the pandemic all at the same time, you know, and it's just like, it's insanity. But how was it like with those areas? Did they like when you're in a I've never I've been in tornado disaster zones very briefly, but how far along do the residents in that area that are affected follow those guidelines to a T? Because I personally, I'd be at that point, if my home was gone, you know, I'd say, forget it. I just same. let's get this back on our feet get this rebuilt and consider the rest later. Oh, but yeah. as you know, was there any kind of skepticism about the recovery efforts in, in conjunction with the coronavirus? So Cookville, the Nashville slash Cookville tornado happened just before this all kicked off. It was like April or March 5th, I think, or 4th. Um, and, and states started to close down like the week later. Right. So that was a little before that. So volunteers showed up in droves. It was amazing it was absolutely amazing seeing cookville all the volunteers it was thousands of people if i had to guess now chattanooga happened after and that was the thing they talked about in the news i didn't actually cover it right away so i don't know for sure i covered it last week so i went last week for um ap images and i photographed and i was actually there following around insurance agents and stuff and these insurance agents were doing like super strict ppe super strict everything they were actually giving ppe to the their clients to like make sure they were protected while they were there doing the assessment. So I think like those who are taking it pretty serious, but if you looked around, it was kind of a mix, you know, and I'm, I'm with mm-hmm. you, man. I'd be like, <laughs> I'd want to worry about my house falling down. And yeah, your, your life has been, you know, obliterated for yeah in one night. It's terrible. It's There's tragic. Bigger fish to fry. I would assume that would be yeah. my mentality. They said uh, one thing that they were talking about, this insurance company was saying that they are having a lot of people stay in the houses even though they could be like through insurance paid for like a hotel or something like that, they felt more safe staying in a damaged house that they know doesn't have coronavirus than they were going to a hotel or something like that where there might be coronavirus. So that was a big thing that they were talking about, like a lot wow. of people. And they said there's some of them that are just too bad. And we said like, you can't stay here, like the roof's falling down or something. But they said a lot of houses were damaged and people were like, no, I'd rather stay here and deal with like the damaged wall or the no roof than go to a hotel where... I have no idea who was there. I have no idea what's going on. You know what I mean? Like they were like, I don't want to go sure. in a public space. And I think people take it still serious down here. And I think that was kind of indicative of the approach of like, they're still taking it serious. It's just like a little different down here, I guess. It's so much more spread out. I mean, you know, so many more single family homes, even in Nashville. 
Like, it's not like high rises everywhere. There are high rises everywhere, but like, you know, it's a small fraction of even a metro area like Nashville. So, of course, we went over there with Trump. I I think that was the last time I was out of D.C. was when he came to survey the damage in Cookville. Yeah, no, that was about March 8th through 10th range. Yeah, it was right right at the start. We we were kind of skeptical as to whether he would go or not because of we uh, probably he would. But we, you know, you never know. Yeah. So it was starting to be the, at the point when we said, well, maybe, we, you know, who knows? They might be teetering on a decision for that. So unsure. Yeah. I mean, it all happened so fast. I mean, it was just like it was like a lightning strike, at least down here for me, because it was like I was covering MLS. I was doing the tornado thing and I had a bunch of like entertainment and paid jobs lined up. And then all of a sudden it was just like NBA has gone. This is gone. That's gone. States are closing down. And it was like, boom, like lights out. Gone. Yeah, did you? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and then uh, Tennessee as a whole lagged behind about a week or two from there. So like people were staying home before the governor said anything, like a lot of people. And it was kind of like, you know, hey, this is suggested like the you know CDC said. And then I think it was about April, maybe second or fourth. They ordered the stay at home order and stuff like that. So similar to yourself and maybe others in the area. Did you have to like dramatically change up your your business like you know you like you just said a lot of entertainment a lot of sports and now it's pretty hard news and yeah. mixed in with some disasters and that can be uneasy uh for a lot of people that you know the regular line of work is now completely upended i mean can you what was that like dude i lost more money than i'm willing to say publicly but i lost a lot of money i had a lot of big jobs lined up that were advertising jobs reportage style advertising jobs but i had like some doc film work lined up for some brands and that is postponed slash gone so that was super hard and then all yeah all my entertainment gigs and sports gigs got canceled but i came from the world of news i mean i love news i you know worked at newspapers i freelanced news since 2010 2011 i was stoked to get back into it and i was trying hard to get back into the news world anyways. So it's been actually psychologically hugely rewarding to me to be covering news again. Um, Circumstances are not great to be doing so, but man, I am very excited to be back covering this stuff. I mean, that day covering the tornado, 18-hour day, was probably my favorite day of work I've had in like years. And I know that's like weird. I I know you get it. like a true news person. I know. I was on my feet for 15 hours and I did 15 to 20,000 steps today. It was glorious. Dude, I went to bed at like 1130 or 12 o'clock at night and then woke up to the tornado siren at 1 a.m. Was reading the news, watching the TV on my phone. And I was texting a guy from the local paper and I was like, hey, like, what do you think? And he's like, ah, he goes, I don't know. I don't know. if Basically, are we going to go out? You know, is he going to go out for the local paper? Am I going to go out for Getty? And the desks, the desks were just closing for the night. So I messaged the desk. And I was like, "Hey, I might go out. Can you make me a? But uh, can you make me an ID file? You know, for this assignment in case I go." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, sure." So they shot me that, and I was like, "Eh." Guy texts me two minutes later. I just lost my roof, and I was like, "Done. I'm going." So wow. it was one in the morning, and I headed out, and I heard about Cookville maybe being a little worse. And I'm from a small town. It's a small town. I said, "No, nah, I'm going to go," and I ended up going, and you know fast forward 14 hours later i was sleeping in the back of my truck and waiting for a church service and you know so i did that for two days but yeah no i mean so that happened and then now the coronavirus and like i said it mentally it's been a huge blessing because i was doing so much of this other stuff that isn't as uh rewarding to me but it's on the back of a terrible 
event. I mean, this pandemic's horrible for so many people. Right. And I know so many people are in fear. For us, though, it it's kind of the way we work. I mean, you know, we run towards the fires, we run towards the wars, we run towards the whatever terrible thing happens. The hard thing for me has been I can't go out and just make work right now. I can't I can't in good conscience be like, oh, I'm just going to go feature hunt and find a story because I could be making the situation worse. That's been the hard thing for me. Now, uh, on, on top of thinking about hard occurrences for working in those environments, you know, you've, like you said, working since 2010, you've had a fair line of time working with various outlets, nationally speaking, and local too. And in hindsight, it's just thinking about it. You know, what do you say to the people that didn't have a lot of, had some news experience and, you know, had different avenues of work? and want to jump into news, you know, do you, do you have a, an idea how to pitch to editors amidst the crisis when now all that's on your platter is breaking news, especially in Tennessee, yeah. tornadoes and, and coronavirus, you know, how do you, how do you try and break through the craziness to try and be heard to get in touch with editors? How do, how do you, how are you getting, you know, seen amongst the craziness like that? Well, I think number one, if you aren't already in the circle, I think right now is probably the worst time to get into somebody's circle. I mean, a lot of editors have been like, yeah, we don't want to hire freelancers, like a bunch of them. So I'm pretty budgets have been pretty strained. Budgets is one thing, but risk. I mean, I remember the first week I hit up a couple clients who I won't name, not that it's a bad thing, but they were just like, we're not hiring freelancers, like end of conversation. And they're people I've worked for for years. They're just like, yeah, we're just not doing it. I had a call today about a job that we've been talking about. And they're just like, if it was next door to you, we'd send you to this. But it's not. And we aren't allowing anyone to travel right now. So even though the South, I could drive through three states that are open to do this job, which is what I plan to do. I was going to drive to this job instead of fly. They were like, yeah, we we can't allow you to travel. So that's been super hard. Um, But the number one thing is to figure out what the story is. I mean, that's what always all photojournalism is just finding stories. So what I've been doing is finding out what will run photographically? What is the news? So I've been watching a lot of the local news. I've been reading the local paper here, which is the Tennessean. It's Tennessee's uh, Gannett Wing or Nashville's, I should more accurately say, wing of the USA Today market. So I've been reading a lot of them. So I've been looking and seeing, okay, what? where are their like, milestones? So for instance, this week, we opened the restaurants in 89 counties. They announced that Friday morning. I'm watching the presser and you know, I turn on the news in the morning or read the paper in the morning. And I was like, oh, that's that's a thing like other cities, other states aren't doing that. So I'm going to send them that. So I sent a bunch of clients that and now tomorrow will be the retail. So I'm going to send some emails tonight and be like, hey, you know, here's the places I found opening. And I know that's not happening in other places. And then once you are shooting, you got to figure out what what's going to run, you know, who's your client. So it's like, right. So when I shot the restaurants opening yesterday, I was looking for people holding drinks or wine or whatever with like gloves on or, you know, serving tables with masks and stuff like that. So I was like looking for things that would be that would tell the story in a single frame kind of stuff a lot of the time. But yeah, that's basically what I'm looking for is like kind of finding things that are different here compared to the rest of the country or how the story is changing. So and a lot of times what I find with pitching is like you pitch that aspect and maybe that doesn't work out, but then they find something they go backwards and say, oh, I just saw this thing in Tennessee or I just saw this thing in Kentucky like or Alabama. Like uh, I know someone there. I'm going to send that person there or whatever. So that's kind of what I mean, that's generally how my success works with pitching. Anyways, it's like you don't get the thing you pitch for. You get the other thing. But this has been actually pretty successful because, you know, you can find the thing that's going to be the next story in the news. But man, I, I think it'd be really hard right now to break into something new because I think people are kind of weird about new unless you're someone they really know. I think they'd be kind of reticent to drop you in on this because it's such a big deal and there's so much risk of just a human being there and and i think 
that goes without saying for some, but for maybe students or anybody that's, you know, looking to cover this thing, you don't have to be in New York. You don't have to be in the big cities or this has hit the worst. Bring up an element from home. Show me something. An editor had told me, editors always have told me when I was going to reviews as a student, you don't have to be, you know, don't be at ground zero for this topic or event, but express to me how this topic affects your hometown, your backyard. Show oh. me a slice of that. If you can get, you know, bring some personality to where you're from and show me about, you know, what's right in front of you. And then that can be building yeah. blocks from there. I 100% agree with that. Like when I was pitching the one testing thing or we were going back and forth about the one testing site I photographed last weekend or whatever it was, I specifically went through the entire list and started digging at like what those places look like. And one of them was like a fairgrounds. And I was like, okay, this does not look like New York City. This does not look like an NFL stadium. Like, let's go to the place that looks like the rest of America does, um, which will be more representative of like the rural impact of this. But I totally agree. I mean, some of my favorite pictures out of this whole thing have been the small town. There was like a photograph of, I think like teachers and stuff went and set up a fake McDonald's for an autistic student of theirs because they they would go to McDonald's and now they can't go to a McDonald's because McDonald's is closed. So they went and set up a fake McDonald's. They like set up like a little shipping container thing with like a McDonald's. <laughs> so this kid could keep his routine because autistic people are very keen on routines and keeping that repetitive nature of life and it makes them feel better. Stuff like that. It's like, that's not going to happen in Manhattan. Like, you know what I mean? No one can go get a shipping container and make a fake little restaurant in a small town. But like, I've seen stuff like that. I've seen like parades and all kinds of like wild things that are like total small town stories that are just showing humanity through all of this, which is, I totally agree with you, man. Like, yeah, if you're a student, figure out a safe way to do it. Keep your distance, bring your gear, you know, do the things, um, make pictures, but like also like it might be one of those times where it's like you going to a testing site as a student or something like that is probably not, those pictures are boring. Like find the picture that shows the personality and the humanity to it. Absolutely. No, it, and you don't need all the, you know, overwhelming amount of gear that some of us carry for these jobs. You know, sometimes it takes one camera and a 50, you know, and some patience and some good composition to go in there and, and make it work. You oh, know, yeah. a, a lot of us are on a shoestring budget. It's not always easy, no. uh, but it's doable. It's absolutely doable. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. One last thing I was thinking of is a guy who's, I only know him by his Instagram name, but he's out of Minneapolis and he did this project in winter of like lost gloves. He's from, works for the Minneapolis uh, Star Tribune and he was doing these pictures of these gloves on the ground and it was supposed to be like winter gloves. Like it was like a winter kind of like Instagram account he started and now he's pivoted it to photographing the PPE gloves that are on the ground. And it's like such a great, like that's the perfect example of like a great little photo project. And so he's got all of these all of these gloves. So it's just like a whole account of just all these gloves. And it's like a little commentary. But yeah, there's Subway so many hands. Take notes. Exactly. Figure, figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Ben Rasmussen. Sadly, that's. Oh, yeah. Ben Rasmussen has been photographing his Zoom calls. So he's been doing Zoom portraits. So he's doing portraits of people on Zoom. It's stuff like that. I mean, there's a way to make work in these times. And if you can figure out a way to work in these parameters and find something that's interesting, visually appealing and speaks to the story. I mean, that's the most important things that, you know, you get the story across. Like there's something made anywhere in this country or around the world. And don't go out making it unnecessarily. You yeah. Stay at home. If you're, you know, if you've got loved ones at home, anybody, parents, don't go out just because, uh, you know, be safe out there, of course. No one's going to feel less of you. No one's going to see you at short course or something no. next year and be like, oh, wow, you don't have a pandemic picture. What are you doing? Like everyone's going to, no one's, I assure you, like campaign pictures in 2017 versus 2016, like nobody wanted to see those pictures. Like even Much though it's a huge rather story, see you in short course than see you injured beforehand. Yeah. yeah. 
It's not worth it. It's exactly. just not worth it. Exactly. Well, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people find you on the internet to touch base and connect with you and find your work? Well, th- thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, you can see me anywhere. Uh, some of my work from across the past couple of years is at uh, tombrenner.net. And you can follow me on Instagram at tom underscore Brenner. And uh, you can also see what we're doing day to day at Reuters. Uh, just search my name. Awesome, man. Uh, I appreciate it so much. You taking the time and uh, as always, stay safe and make awesome pictures of weird things. I, I've uh, I my one last quick thing. My last assignment, I told the other guy there. I was shooting this uh, testing site and I was like, I, you know, we have a friendly rivalry. We, we've been friends for a long time. And so I said to my buddy, I, I had my pictures. I had everything I need. I had my a cam stuff, as I call it. And I was like, you know, I just don't have anything to beat Brenner today. And I'm really mad about that. And he, he was like, what? And I was like, I was like, I just want to make something to beat Brenner. And uh, yeah. So if you don't follow Tom, you should check him out. He's got a he's got a weird way of seeing the world that I I and many people really love. I, I will just tell you if I get in there testing one, I'm going to outbrenner you. I've got the idea. I'm just waiting to find it. I look appreciate. For- yeah, l- good luck with the with the 16 by two verticals and all the weird <laughs> wacky stuff. I love to just throw out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're a frame shop nightmare. Pre- <laughs> Pre- <laughs> That's very true. I never looked at it like that. But yeah. Well, maybe we got a new industry on the back end of coronavirus for yeah. wacky frames. Maybe your dad's like a custom framer and you, this is just all a secret ploy to like, you know, you're selling custom frames out of the back door. So, you can, <laughs> yeah, I'll sell you this print. It's 16 by 2. Go to BrennerowskiFraming.com to get your frame. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you all how that goes on on Instagram. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes from there on Etsy or Pinterest or anywhere like that. Exactly. Well, thanks again, Tom. We'll talk soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. So now we have Chris Grayson, and he's a staff photographer with Getty Images based in New Orleans. Now, he is based in New Orleans, but he works with the motorsports division, so he's covering a lot of things all around the country, uh, a lot of stuff for NASCAR. So, Chris, uh, how are you doing, man? Yeah, it's doing all right, kind of like everybody else at this point. A lot of sitting at home. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, lot of time at home for everybody. What do you normally do throughout the year for Getty uh, in your staff role? Um, basically, I'm responsible for everything related to NASCAR. And that includes being at the track, actually shooting uh, photos. But I also manage all the relationships and the clients and the sponsors that we work with on a weekly basis. So that takes up, uh, you know, sort of the rest of the week. I'm, I'm going into my 15th year now of, of doing NASCAR. I don't want to say full time because I do other sports, but NASCAR is the lion's share of what I do on a week basis. Yeah. And so uh, Getty obviously provides editorial coverage, like a news source, like other like AP and USA Today does. Yep, correct. But Getty also um, works with NASCAR on a uh, commercial level. So there's there's a deeper relationship for Getty when it comes to NASCAR. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have relationships with a lot of different leagues uh, that are around there, the NHL, the NBA, and NASCAR is one of those. And so we're uh, the official photo providers for NASCAR, and we, we, we facilitate everything for them on a weekly basis. Awesome. So uh, NASCAR, like many sports right now, shut down. Uh, And so when that happened, they were just a few races into the 2020 season. What went through that for you? Like basically what was going on? And then like what happened as that kind of came to fruition? 
Interesting. Yeah, because I, I was at the last race to be canceled uh, before it got canceled in Phoenix. And even at that race, you know, it was uh, at the meet and greet Sunday morning, even the drivers were kind of getting to be like, uh, you know, fist bumps, you know, we're not really shaking hands or anything. It, it, you could tell things were changing. And I got home from that and essentially went to Atlanta about a week later, drove there in a car with a, a, a colleague of mine, Brian Laudermilk, who lives very close to me. And we got six miles away from the track and they canceled the race. And we're like, okay, all right. So we, we basically turned around at that point and drove back home. And, you know, like everyone else, we, we didn't know what was going to happen from there on. So, I mean, that's a, a big level of uncertainty. Um, but then a very random and very weird thing happened. And that involves video games. Yeah, actually, yes. So we, we, you know, N NASCAR looked at it and tried to find a way, you know, we still have this TV time and this partnerships and these drivers are sitting at home, you know, what, what can we do with this? And they thought about iRacing. It's an online service. Um, it's a great service, actually. It's very lifelike. They, they actually, iRacing goes to all these tracks and they laser scan the track. So the bumps and the curves and the cracks in the track and everything, it's just like the real track and it's just put into a computer. So they thought, well, you know, let's let's do a race online and see how it goes. And initially, we were thinking just trying to get pictures of behind the scenes drivers sitting in their sim rigs at home. And, and some of the drivers have forty thousand dollars sim rigs. Wow. You know, some have three hundred bucks. So we thought, OK, you know, let's try to get those pictures, but let's go into the game and see if we can do something in the game as well. And, and we've done a little bit of that before with uh, Gran Turismo. We've, we've done some in-game photography about a year ago with a, a photographer named Clive Rose. He's, he's sort of our leader of the uh, eSport world uh, for Getty. But yeah, so we, we went into the game and there's a, a pretty decent photo mode built into it and uh, took pictures digitally. <laughs> Yeah, that it's it's really interesting because um, in addition to, I mean, you are photographing the event. I mean, that that is, I had the same thought you did. It's like you know, these guys have these different sims. They're all over the country now. I'm sure, probably mostly in North Carolina, if we're honest. But M mostly, yeah, mostly. <laughs> mostly North Carolina. But you know, they're all over the country technically. And then instead, right. now you can be sitting at home in New Orleans and be uh, quote photographing the event digitally. How has that been? Uh, both uh, uh, change, but also, is there things that maybe you can't do normally that you are able to do now? Um, actually, I mean, it, it's quite the change, and it's been a good challenge for me. It's something to kind of keep my mind occupied, and you know, everybody I think is looking for something to uh, to keep themselves occupied these days. So for me, being able to jump into this, I mean, I love games, I love playing video games. I I always have. I grew up in the, the Nintendo NES, Super NES. You know, I I, I love it. So. It was neat to be able to combine sort of the passion for video gaming and for photography. But honestly, there's there's nothing you can't do in the video game. I can put the camera exactly where I want it. I mean, to the millimeter of where I want it. I can adjust the focus. I can adjust the lens. I can adjust um, the, the motion blur. So I can have either a big depth of field. I can have, you know, a blurred background. It, it's almost limitless what you can do. 
Yeah, I was looking through some of your work on, on Getty's site, and I was like, there's stuff in here that I would kill to be able to do. Like, if I could go sit <laughs> on the 10-yard line at a football game and, like, just go behind the defensive line and be like, all right, I'm going to get a cool one of, you know, Tom Brady dropping back right now. And you're effectively doing that right now with these digital race cars. I mean, I saw pictures on there that were like, yeah, let's just put the 11 to 24 on the back bumper at number three, and then the next lap I'll change it to number 58. Like, it's insane. The first couple of races, I approached it as I would a normal race, right? I started looking at the normal photo positions that we used at those certain tracks, uh, like Watkins Glen and Michigan and Bristol. And then I realized exactly there, there's so many other places that I can put the camera. So all the places that I've really wanted to do, like at Bristol, they have um, Bristol, Tennessee is a half mile bull ring and it seats 150,000 people. And it's an incredible experience to be there. But they have on the wall, the last great Coliseum, you know, written on the wall. And I've always wanted to do a picture with that just highlighted, the last great Coliseum with a car going by. And obviously you can't do that because you'd have to be on the track (laughs) during the race. (laughs) But now you can. So, you know, in some ways you're able to take the knowledge of 15 years of motorsport photography, you know, the angles and the way we do things and, you know, the the little minor details that we do to, to make our pictures try to stand out. And then put it in a completely different place. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And is there also like, is there stuff that I feel like maybe the client's side of things, maybe they like need to have, or maybe they, maybe, maybe you have to follow the old rules just because like, we're like, Hey, we need the car from the front left corner panel or something like that. In some ways I've been doing that out of habit. Okay. So for say for each race weekend, both for IndyCar and NASCAR, the, the picture that basically gets used the most is a three quarter angle of the car shot from inside the track looking at the driver's side. That's basically because you can see the whole car, you can essentially see every single sponsor and they, you know, everybody's represented. And I've been sh- shooting that and it, it's actually kind of fun because you can put the camera exactly where you want it and then you just hit play. <laughs> And then you just fast forward a couple of frames until the next car is there and then fast forward another couple of frames until the next car is there. And it goes a lot quicker than it does in in the real world. But, (laughs) you know, each team still wants to be represented. And and that's something that we've been making sure that each team has something to be to to use. But uh, there there hasn't been anything really specific requests um, as of yet. Well, this is wild. And I I hope you're back to wearing long pants and breathing race gas soon. Uh, yeah, exactly, but it's right. been fun talking to you, man. And I think this is awesome. And it's it gives me a little bit of hope that there's always ways to pivot in this industry. And there's always ways to find something new and interesting. You know, that that's the big, the big thing for me uh, personally over this has just been finding ways to, you know, expand my horizons, I guess, so to speak. And it's awesome to hear that you guys are doing that in this way. Yeah, thanks. No, it, it's been, you know, just trying to do anything. To, to, to keep the mind fresh and keep it going. And uh, this eSport thing was it was uh, a great outlet to try to move forward. It's awesome. It's uh, way better than my backyard bird pictures I've been working on. <laughs> it's the only way to keep it's my... It's all photography. It's, it's, it's all it's, photography. That's right. It's the only way to keep my long lens skills up right now. I got the 600 millimeter sitting on the back porch watching finches and uh, woodpeckers. So. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. Thanks for listening to Reciprocity Podcast please take a moment to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found value in this podcast and want to learn even more, head over to patreon.com slash reciprocity podcast to support the show.